science. I'm Malcolm Love, and I'm joined with, uh, joined by, not joined with, Hannah <laughs> Bestwick. We haven't got married in between, have we? I, I missed that. I missed oh that completely. Um, <laughs> Hannah Bestwick and uh, Andrew Glester. We're not married either. No, we're not married either. No. That hasn't happened either. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, great to have you uh, both here, of course. And, and Hannah, we haven't seen you for a little while, because wh- what have you been doing? What possibly could have taken your time away from this program? I, I I had to write a dissertation and I was running out of time and I was getting quite stressed. Yeah. So I, um, I decided to take a little break from BCFM and uh, spend all of my time writing after my work, after I finished my actual job work. Yeah. So my days were long. Your day and job. <laughs> it's over now, though. It's Very over. good. So you've, you've come back to sanity. So it's yes. great. It's lo- lovely to have you here. And you've been busy in your shed. I've been busy in my shed, yeah. yeah. Allowed yeah. out of your shed? Um, you? I'm not. Well, yes, I'm here. So this is my first time out of my shed for some time. How does it uh, feel? Um, I, d- disconcertingly large. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've got uh, a programme, of course, as usual, full of science uh, news and some science behind the news. And um, the first story that we've got this week, that we've picked up this week, of the many things that are happening in science news, uh, is this thing about CRISPR. Now, I should say that CRISPR is... Um, is an acronym. I have to uh, confess, I can't remember what it stands for. Can no, I, I don't know what it stands but for. But we all use, um, we all use, well, we don't all use it, but uh, when we chat about this, we use this term CRISPR. It's a cheap, easy technique for making very precise changes to DNA. It's like the equivalent of getting a pair of scissors and going snip, snip, and taking a piece of uh, DNA out. And um, uh, there was a rather eventful conference live on I think it was Facebook. Yeah, it was streamed live on Facebook. Um, A guy called Josiah Zayner, he's a biochemist that used to work for NASA, had uh, got hold of a a kind of a DIY uh, CRISPR kit. Now, I don't think it takes out a piece of gene. What it does is it precisely creates a space for a gene to be inserted um, in, in your body i guess in your in your uh, genomes in your cells and what this guy did was he he's just injected himself with something that he hopes to make him really muscly in one arm and that's <laughs> just that's, in one arm well it's, he says that his expected outcomes are that he will be he will gain muscle mass in one arm okay um and and i think people are a bit worried that that you can diy this because well, I mean, if you're starting to make changes to your own genome at home, potentially, like, <laughs> you can see that that could go wrong. Yeah, you can see. You could. But there's I'm also I'm an sure. argument that, like, how many people are even going to be able to get hold of this or even understand, like, know yeah. what to do? Yeah. Like, 99% of us. I mean, I, I, I think I've definitely seen some television series where this kind of thing has gone wrong. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. This is for sure a classic <laughs> plot line. Yeah. But, it, like, so... And surely if you put something in your arm, it's not mm. going to just make your muscle mass. You have to do some exercise as well alongside it, don't well, you? Well, that's what I think would be a better way of gaining muscle mass, <laughs> just do some exercise. Yeah. But I, I, I just imagine it's something um, like a, a gene that um, 
promotes and supports muscle gain. Yeah. So you have to do you don't have to do as much to gain the muscle like you get in um, cows that have a genetic disorder that causes them to double their muscle mass. Do you know okay. What I mean? It does seem quite strange to me though. I feel like if you were editing your genes, then it would affect more than one arm. I'm, yeah. Well, I'm that's that's the main that's the main thing they want to do with it. So there's um, recently also been the first full body trial of intravenous uh, CRISPR treatment a guy with Hunter's syndrome so Mm. normally they would just do it on isolated sections of the body Mm. but not in the way that this guy uh, Josiah has done they would take out like some um, bone marrow treat Mm. it and put it back in you Um, but what they've done now is they've made it uh, treatment so that you can just intravenously have it all over your body and potentially treat all of your cells at once or in one go, um, which is what they want to happen rather than just a uh, localised treatment, I'm fairly sure. Yeah. So they, there's, there's the two sides of this, isn't there? There's the, this health angle where there's yeah. the Hunter's syndrome. Is yeah. yeah. Yep. And there's this guy who's had, uh, he, he's volunteered himself. He didn't think he was going to live for longer than over 20 years or something. And mm. he's, he's now 44. He says he's been in pain every day of his life. And he's volunteered himself for this, this brand new technology yeah. to, to, to hopefully remove him from that, that pain. And then there's this other guy, Josiah, former NASA uh, bio something yeah and biochemist biochemist and and he's he's doing it more for science fiction reasons he wants to make his arm stronger yeah he wants to kind of be superhuman yeah. that's what a lot of the uh, the headlines are accusing him of being like, mm. trying to make himself a superhuman well there's a lot of talk as well isn't there about super, superhumans and, and, and people people saying hey we've we've spent a lot of time thinking about fixing things that are wrong mm. so you know we could make a a, a, a a new leg for somebody who's uh, who, who's lost a leg and you know replace a even replace a heart and so on but um uh, maybe uh, uh, what we should be thinking about is enhancing human beings. Why? Why can't we have a, a something fitted so we can see an infrared and uh, all that kind of thing? So is it, I see this debate yeah. as all part of that same thing. This idea of uh, uh, hu- the augmented human. Mm. Uh, of course, the big argument there is it's, it tends to be just for rich people. Yeah, just yeah. for people with money. Do you want to see an infrared? <laughs> I'm not sure I do yeah. actually. I'm I'm quite happy the way I am at the moment. Yeah. But then I never was very ambitious. So, no, yeah. I wonder could you switch it off? You know, would you always see yes. an infrared or would you can you be like data in oh, Star yeah. Trek? Yeah. Just like, it switches you... off his emotions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh I just switch off my infrared now. Yeah. I've got yeah. an infrared camera in my back garden and I watch yeah. watch for hedgehogs and stuff. That's lovely. Yes. But I, I don't know that I need it in my own eyes with the camera. Yeah, but hmm. you wouldn't you could like walk around at night and just not need a torch and not wake anyone up by turning on the lights because you'd just be able to see yeah. infrared. But I feel like in the day it would be really bright. I don't, I don't know enough yeah, about Yeah, it would be this. horrendously <laughs> bright in the day. You wouldn't, but you, you would, would need, need to turn, to turn it, off. it off. That's okay. a good point. <laughs> there's, a, there's another story um, very similar to this, but it's a slightly different thing. It's, it's uh, various people carried it. Um, the one I'm looking at is from the BBC. The first gene editing in human body attempt. Uh, Jamie Gall has written this up. The gene editing has been attempted on cells inside a patient in a world first by doctors in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story goes on to say that uh, Brian Madur, 44, uh, from, or Mad- might be Maddox, uh, from Arizona, was given the experimental treatment to try to correct a defect in his DNA that causes a thing called Hunter's Syndrome. Mm-hmm. I've, I have to say, I'd never heard of Hunter's Syndrome. It's very rare. Patients are 
born without the genetic instructions for an enzyme that breaks down um, long sugary molecules they call mucopolysaccharides. Uh, instead, they build up in the body and they damage the brain and other organs, and it's uh, very often fatal in, in severe cases. And so um, people need enzyme therapy replacement and so on to break, break it down. But this man, Mr. we'll call him Mr. Maddox, has been given uh, an experimental treatment that actually literally rewrites his DNA. Yeah. It's quite amazing. This is what we were just talking about as well, is he's having it all intravenously, like billions and billions of copies of this uh, molecule that will um, insert a correctly functioning version of the gene um, so that he, he ha can make his own enzyme that will break down these proteins rather than having to have all these uh, treatments that he's having to try and alleviate some of the pain that he's in. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's the intended purpose of this kind of treatment is to, uh, to treat or cure these, at the moment, incurable diseases that cause people to live in pain, not to make you a little bit muscly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's a book just come out in uh, paperback. It's been out for a little while in hardback by uh, Dr. Dean Burnett. Uh, Dean Burnett is uh, course tutor division of psychological medicine and clinical neurosciences at uh, Cardiff University. And he was very interested in uh, the ways our brain uh, doesn't actually work. And um, I asked him uh, to tell us a little bit uh, uh, about his book and about uh, the way the the brain lets us down. The title of his book is uh, "Your Idiot Brain." It's a combination of things. It's uh, it's a method of increasing compliance, as it's known in the psychology terms, making somebody else do what you want them to do um, using these subtle techniques. And uh, the obvious example everyone goes to is uh, the car salesman who haggles with you a bit. Then, so you agree on a good deal for the car, like five thousand pounds with twelve years warranty, or whatever you want to call it. He goes, okay, I'll just go and uh, double check with the manager. Comes back, the uh, manager says he's not happy with that, so could do it for 6000 And people generally will say, no, all right, because they've already decided that they are going to take this car. And then to change their minds then would sort of call their own judgment into doubt. The brain's all about uh, certainty to a certain extent. It doesn't like uncertainty that causes stress that causes discomfort at a sort of psychological, neurological level because, well, various reasons, but the brain's very sensitive to threats. Um, but going back like millennia and eons now of you know, every creature's brain is sensitive to threats. Uh, we have, so, so we're yeah. talking really about the evolution of the, of the primitive brain. Yes, the evolution at the very fundamental levels, but the human brain has got much bigger, much more complex in a relatively short space of time, we're talking two to three million years, which is really rapid. It's like, for example, it's like Spider-Man being bitten one day and having powers the next. You know, it's, uh, it's very quick in evolutionary terms, and there are lots of theories as to why that happened. But we still have the simple stuff going on with all this complex stuff sort of built around it. And again, like I said to people, have you ever tried to install like Windows 10 on a 6 year old laptop? It it, it, it will work, but it's not. Neither side really enjoys the the bargain. So we've got all this complex cognitive process sort of installed on top of the fundamental instinctive stuff, and they tend to sort of get in each other's way quite a lot. One of which is the part of the brain which raises threats doesn't like uncertainty, 
because basically you think about threats. Like if you're uncertain about something, you don't know what's going to happen, which means you can't plan and prepare for it. You sort of sit and wait for it to happen. And that could potentially mean a dangerous thing happens and you don't know what to do, which is unsettling at a very instinctive level. And because of the complex nature of our brains, we have this uh, ability to predict, to plan, and to have this sort of self-identity, this self-awareness. So when we decide to do something, if suddenly we go, no, I'm not doing that, that's not just changing our minds, that is calling our judgment into question. It, calls, it makes us less certain, it's something we don't like to do at a sort of instinctive level. This is a very interesting thing because it might be very foolish to say, no, I'm absolutely convinced that there is not a tiger in those bushes and that's the decision that I've made, so I'm going to carry on walking along this path anyway. Does it still work out that it's better to make a decision and stick with it in, in, in the terms of the primitive brain than it does to go around being, mm, I'm not entirely sure? Most animals, they just respond to what's going on around them. So, you know, if they say, you know, there's no sign of a tiger in the woods, well, I'll, I'll go through there then, because there's nothing to say otherwise. If something did appear, then they just turn and run, because they're not sort of committed to a course of action. They, 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 they can respond, like, in, in, they live in the now, they respond to this, you know, to what's going on around them. We don't have to do that. We are lucky, in a sense, that we can, you know, we can think about the past, we can plan for the future, we can recognise how we change over time which is a great thing in many ways, but it does mean, you know, it, cause, it can cause a lot more uncertainty, a lot more self-doubt, you know, sort of complex complexity. And so then if we decide, right, I'm going to do this, uh, if, if, if you say to yourself, I am definitely going to jump off a cliff, and then you get to the end of the cliff saying, well, I probably will die, but <laughs> I've decided now. I know there, 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 there are ways, it's not, it's not a hard and fast rule. Like, and, are... and you say in the book that um, we define ourselves by our decisions. Our sense of who we are comes from the decisions that we make. Yes, that does seem to be, I mean, it's not just that. That's, that, that isn't the, the only thing that you know, defines us, but that's a big part of it because you know, a lot of the brain seems to be sort of uh, charged with or geared towards self-analysis, self-awareness, self-assessment, the ability to look at ourselves and say, well, I am good at this, I am bad at that, this is a good thing about me, this is a bad thing about me. And what you do, what you decide to do, what your beliefs are, they are a big part of this sense of identity. So, well, I'm a morally right person because I think this, I do this, and I I do this sometimes, that means I'm a bit of a, you know, I I could do better there. And these are things... We, you know, our self-confidence, our self-worth, our you know, sense of identity, these are all things which inform that. We have uh, essentially what is a sort of mental model of the world around us and our place in it in our heads at all times, like a sort of running simulation, which helps us decide how to behave and how to react and how to respond and how to approach things. And a lot of this is based on our previous decisions and like, the, well, I did this before and they end up this way, so next time I'll do that or I'll do that again. And it all sort of feeds into this running narrative, really, we have about who we are and how the world works. So the things we end up deciding will influence and inform that. Uh, And I know that you're uh, very interested in in how this affects uh, our sense of identity with groups. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be a particular one I've um, become quite interested in. I, I sort of pin it to the fact that I'm from like a South Wales mining valley background, so a really working class area, the first academic from the family and community. Uh, so I've always felt like a bit of an outsider in that respect and coming to, to doing PhD amongst my more academic background friends from more more refined backgrounds, perhaps. Uh, 
and doing comedy stuff that sort of you become aware of uh, how people act when they're together and it does seem to be quite a big thing in that we have evolved to interact that's that seems to be a, sort of a consensus amongst the the evolutionary neuroscience side of the field and that's one theory as to why we ended up being so smart so fast in the first place because humans are social creatures they hang around in groups and at one point the primitive human group got so successful in terms of survival that when you're born into a human group back in the day you didn't have to worry about food or predators because they were kept at bay by the fact that you already lived in a large pack of primates as it were so the things that improved your chances of survival and you know, passing on your genes to the next generation and getting most mates. These are more social aspects, like who is the friendliest, who is the smartest, who is the one who is most useful, who can dominate others better, who can manipulate other people better. And these are all things which require more brain power. And as a result, we had a sort of evolutionary pressure to become as smart as possible, as fast as possible. And that's one theory as to why we ended up like this. So our interactions with other people is a big part of why we are the way we are. Congratulations, because your book's now out in paperback and available in all, mm -hmm. all good bookshops. <laughs> and the bad ones, don't, don't, don't rule them out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what, what was your overarching purpose in, in writing the book? Um, so there's quite a few that sort of came together in the eventual process. I... Well, first, I never actually planned to write a book because, uh, as I tell people, I'm not the best neuroscientist. I'm not some sort of leader of the field. I'm not like a highly respected researcher. I'm just a, a job in neurobod, um, do a lot more teaching than research. Don't do any research, actually. And But I can sort of do the comedy sideline and things like that. And people got interested in my work. So I started writing about trying to combine science and comedy and Guardian's columns are going well. And... You know, publishers got interested and there was a discussion about what I would what I would write. I was a bit reluctant to write a book about the brain at first, despite being a neuroscientist. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I've read a lot of the mainstream neuroscience brain, brain books. books. It's a sort of reverence around the brain, like how amazing it is, how brilliant, how complex, how unfathomable, how unknowable, how powerful. And while a lot of this is true, it is like still the most complex thing that we know about. And it's you know, uh, very impressive in what it can do and does do on a second-by-second -second basis. And uh, I've read loads of books about it for like doing reviews for magazines and just my own interest. And they sort of seem to convey this image too. And I never thought that was particularly helpful because when you are somebody who works in the field of neuroscience, the way I used to describe it, it's like, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of the brain. It's like when you first start a relationship and then you move in with someone. At first it's great, you know, it's all harps and roses and amazing. You get to spend all your time together and then their habits start to really get your nerves a bit. You know, they, they keep stacking the dishwasher the wrong way and they keep like spending too long in the bathroom and they put the pillows back on the wrong way around and then you start sort of seething about it and you, st you still love them, but you, you, you're, you're, you're aware they're not, not perfect. You know, you're not going to kill them, but you think about it sometimes. And that's... <laughs> And that's sort of where I am with the brain. Like I sort of, you, you know, I've done lots of different approaches to it, different jobs in the field, and you get to see the imperfections or the, not even the flaws, because it's not anything wrong. It's just, it's structured in a roundabout way or a logical way, or it does things in a inefficient manner because it's not designed, it's evolved. It's something which has evolved over millions of years in response to what was going on at the time. And it's what we've got now. This is, this is how it is. And I think this idea that the brain is more mystical and magical and brilliant and infallible is potentially harmful because it goes wrong all the time. So when you're told that something is brilliant and beyond our understanding, and then it starts doing weird, you know, counterproductive things, 
that's a scary thing. Is it? Well, this thing's brilliant. Why is it not working? There must be something seriously, domestic, drastically wrong. And that sort of feeds into things like mental health stigma and so on. And I sort of wanted to really get out there. Like, Look, it's it's brilliant, but it's not perfect. It does loads of things badly or wrongly or just weirdly or surreally. And and that's something which influences us all. It's like it explains so much about why we are why the way we are, why we do what we do. And I don't think these things should be overlooked. I think they should be embraced. These are, you know, these are the things which make us what we are. We are, we do it really well in spite of it, not because of it in many ways. And that's that's an achievement which should be lauded. And when it goes wrong, don't well, that's not great. But don't think it's anything fundamentally problematic with you. It is just something it does now and again. Absolutely. Well, thank you for writing it. Thank you for talking no to us. And uh, Dr. Dean Burnett, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. And as I said, that was uh, uh, Dr. Dean Burnett, who's uh, at, uh, he's a, in the Division of Psychological Medicine and Clinical Neurosciences as a course tutor uh, in Cardiff, Cardiff University. And uh, he has uh, written a book which is called Your Idiot Brain, available in all good bookshops now. Um, so we're looking at science in the news, science behind the news. And apparently, Andrew, yes, we have just sent... On the anniversary mm. of a historic message sending to another world from Arecibo, we've just sent another message to tell aliens that we're here. Yes, a little toodaloo, hello, we're here, yeah. to the aliens. Yeah. Um, obviously, we don't know that there are aliens. Um, we're fairly certain there could be. Um, but there's <laughs> We're certain that there could be. Yes. I like that. <laughs> yes, no, so the Arecibo Radio Telescope in 1974 sent out a message into the universe to uh, just let any potential alien life out there know that we were there. Now, the way that radio waves work is, uh, in this particular case, is to get them to go so far, you have to beam them in quite a tight beam. So it's pointed at a particular point in the night sky uh, and the day sky in fact but yeah we like to think about these things as the night sky because we're talking about stars so the Arecibo message actually is some distance eons you might say away from its destination so it can't possibly have reached any aliens yet unless they were in a passing spaceship on their way through the beam of this message that was going out there so this new one has been sent because that was sent in 1974 when we thought they were exoplanets but we've never actually seen any hmm. now we know about the existence now we've seen of thousands of them quite yeah and uh, one of the nearest or in fact possibly the nearest um, habitable planet that we've found so far is um, GJ273b. They're beautifully named. Catchy. Mm. Yeah. Mm, uh, which, catchy. which orbits a star about 12 light years away, which is in universal terms is uh, relatively Imagine close. writing close. The, the holiday advertising for this. You know. Yeah. Come and visit uh, GJ273. Yeah. You know. We're not sure if there's life there. Yeah. But come anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's uh, it's in what's known as the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone. It's it, it's not too hot, not too cold. Exactly. Potentially uh, water on the surface, and certainly where there's water on Earth. Anyone who's been watching Blue, Blue Planet Two will know there's life. Mm. So it's entirely possible that there's life on this uh, planet. Um, which is in Canis Major, if you want to look up in the night sky. You won't see the star, it's not bright enough. But if you find Canis Major, that's where this message is heading out to. And it will take around 12 um, years to get there. And if anyone picks it up, it will take about 12 years to come back again. Um, wow. So it's, um, 
I think that this is a an exercise in raising awareness of the fact that radio astronomy happens, that SETI happens, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence happens, and rather than they're expecting a response, it's sort of a test of what we could possibly do. In, in fact, because we're just pointing at one star, if we wanted to actually send a message out into space to look for, and say, hey, here we are, aliens, then we'd want to do a much larger section of the sky and a much more powerful message so i, I think this is a, it's it's a nice um it's a wonderful thing i don't think anybody's expecting a response is what i'm saying mm. but the message itself is quite interesting it's uh, a mathematical formula and uh formulas and tuition on how to do maths from our point of view and then uh, I think it's 33 bits of music from uh, a music festival in Barcelona um, who have been part of the putting together of the message. Oh I like that yeah, idea nice. but what, how is it how is it written? I mean, is it, presumably it's not written in English. No, it's in binary code. Right, okay. Yeah. Do you know what I have to say, because it would be rude to not say, I actually have a message of my own words beaming out into the universe um, at, at, all the time, as I understand it. It's, uh, I won a competition a few years ago to have my message beamed out into space. I also want some books. Nice. And, uh, yeah, so my message is beaming out into space as well. So if any aliens do pick up my message... What it, is your message? Okay, yeah. It's, I want to um, know. It's, uh, if you've been watching our TV broadcasts, I'd like to apologise for everything before and after Carl Sagan's Cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love the idea that we would eventually be visited by aliens mm. and they would land and then all the, the leaders of the world would be there and the door would open and the thing would come out and say... Where's Andrew Glasgow? <laughs> He's in his shed. <laughs> He's in his shed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watching contact. Exactly. <laughs> um, one, one of the other sides of this story, uh, of course, is, is uh, Stephen Hawking has famously said. He's very worried about this. He's not sure it's a, a great idea. Yeah. Because every time a superior, uh, in, in quotes, civilization has gone to um, uh, visit... Uh, a uh, technologically inferior uh, civilization they've taken it over yeah. like uh, like Europeans did in in uh, Latin America and so on and so forth and mm. uh, uh, and in Africa and uh, Australia you know it's all, it's always happened that when we've had the technological upper hand it's not been good news for the people we've quote discovered yes um, but but uh, you know, this may apply here. It may, um, but we're, that's taking a sample size of one human beings mm. and yeah. applying it to the rest of life in the universe, yeah. which that's seems. A good point. Uh, I mean, you know, far be it from me to disagree with Stephen Hawking. He knows a lot about stuff, um, but I, I, I just think it's it. That's a bit like saying, okay, I'm not going to go, uh, I'm not going to go into the forest because uh, there might be wolves. So you mm. never get to see the trees. Mm. And that seems a shame, because trees are amazing. Yeah, so sweet. are wolves, actually, to be fair. Indeed they are. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, well, let's move on to something else completely different and hope. I, for one, by the way, hope that the aliens respond at some point. Yeah. Uh, I've, uh, that, that would just be absolutely w wonderful. I, d I do need to update my message, actually, so I'm going to send out another one saying, I hope you've been enjoying Star Trek Discovery. Isn't that good? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would be good. <laughs> they might come and sue us for copyright infringement <laughs> on their lives. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, here's a nice story. It's a, a bit of a little bit of medical research. Owning a dog cuts the risk of heart attacks and other fatal diseases, according to uh, a new study. Uh, the health benefits of pet dogs are greatest for those who live alone, and it lowers the risk. This is owning a pet of dying from cardiovascular disease by 36 percent. That's more wow. than a third. That's quite impressive. That yeah. is impressive. Uh, yeah. So. Um, uh, I'm one of those people I like animals very much. I, animals always make me happy when I see them. And uh, I can completely understand this, although uh, there are people of the opposite opinion. Um, but uh, researchers have found that dog ownership has a dramatic effect on people who live alone. Uh, and as I said, it can cut the risk of cardiovascular disease by 36%. Um, in households with more people under the same roof, dogs had less of a positive impact, but still lowered deaths from heart disease by 15%. So part of it is just not feeling that you're alone. Yeah, yeah. You know, there is having um, a companion. So Helen Stokes Lampard, who um, leads a, a, a GP group, I can't remember the name of it, in the UK, said that loneliness is as bad for you as a long-term illness. Yeah. And that living on your own doesn't necessarily mean that you're lonely, but it's, it's, there's, there's a potential... There is a benefit that was found there that could potentially link, be linked to the fact that mm. people feel less alone when there's an animal around. Mm. And it is a really large study. It's 3.4 million people yeah, were looked at in number. Sweden. Yeah, yeah. And um, it found that oh, in the UK, actually, there is 1.1 million people who are lonely, who have like self proclaimed that they, they feel lonely and they're 50 more 50 percent more likely to die prematurely than people who don't say, like feel lonely which is why this kind of research is really important because it is mm. um as bad for public health as diabetes with those mm. kind of numbers yes and if wow. something like pet ownership could help improve people's lives and prevent premature death mm. then that would be pretty sweet yes, I, I haven't looked at the at the actual study but it's just dogs that they're talking they haven't yeah looked they at only looked at dogs right. in this yeah. one study but, so we could see the same benefits from other animals as yeah. well potentially yeah cats yeah. Yeah. yeah lizards i wouldn't have that impact aardvarks because i'm yeah. allergic camel to <laughs> same <laughs> yeah, aardvarks yeah no that would that'd be good i think i believe guinea pigs are excellent um particularly if you call them tribble i think that's ah, yes yes absolutely <laughs> no but it makes sense um, they, they, they say they can't explain how the dogs have this effect. And it may, of course, be quite uh, complex. I mean, yeah. It presumably involves the fact if you have a dog, you have to exercise it. Yep, you have so to exercise that. it. They're also um, they're bred to understand people, so they're quite empathetic towards us. And yeah. We feel a companionship there. Um, being around another an animal can... Uh, have like a stress reducing effect on you yeah there's also um speculation that it could affect the kind of microbes that are in your house which means that you if you live in too clean clean an environment that can lead you to be more susceptible to allergies or um getting ill if you're not exposed enough to to um, microbes in your day-to-day -day life so having an uh, having a pet can expose you enough to build up a strong immune system which could prevent you from getting ill as well it's quite an in-depth study it was really interesting i thought it was um and of course um, quite a nice thing to think loneliness itself provokes stress doesn't it or yes a, 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 a the lack of social support yes that people feel stressed and stress we know is bad uh, in in so many ways uh, not only for your cardiovascular system but also for your mental well-being so mm. yeah
Okay, well that's good. Let's have a little bit more uh, music, and um, uh, we'll uh, see what other stories there are um, out there. Um, I'm particularly keen to find out uh, this story that's um, going around that we've managed to stick a new head on. Oh yeah, (laughs) on a body. Uh, head transplant yes a head transplant wow. or it's sometimes called people are saying well actually it, it has to be a body transplant yeah. surely uh, you, it's uh, technically wrong um, and uh, there are people writing rather strongly about this at the moment saying it's all a load of nonsense <laughs> and because I've been told definitively by several people hey isn't it amazing we've been able to transplant a human head onto another body Hannah I don't know if you've seen anything of this story yeah I have seen quite a few claims that we have indeed managed to uh, transplant a head onto a a new body or would you call it an old body I'm not sure Um, (laughs) somebody else's old body but um that would be one that's not using. One that's not, not being used. It's not being used anymore. anymore. Yeah. yeah, it'd be incredibly freaky if it was a new body because it'd be like an adult <laughs> head on a baby. That'd be yes. really. That weird. would be, be quite really disturbing, weird. wouldn't it? Terrible yeah. image. Yeah. Well, uh, but there's uh, two two surgeons who are working on this. So there's Ren Xiaoping and Sergio Canavero, who are sort of leading this this project to transplant a head onto a new body um, to to treat. Um, a p- paralysis essentially and they have claimed success in transplanting the head onto a body but what they have actually done is transplanted the head of one cadaver, a dead body onto mm. the body of another cadaver another okay. dead body yeah. so they've sewn them together, practiced it all and it went really well that's cool. But they're both still dead though but Yeah, they're both still mm. dead and you can't really say that it's going to be exactly the same in when you're trying to keep someone alive. No. Because there's all sorts of other considerations. The brain just starts deteriorating after just a few minutes of like, lack of oxygen. So the, the surgery is going to take about 12 hours. There's mm. a lot of other obstacles to get overcome before. Mm. And the main yeah. obstacle seems to be about the way the, uh, the, the brain, the spinal cord yeah. actually works. That The spinal cord is something completely different from normal tissue mm-hmm. and uh, so this is a kind of Frankensteinian yeah. uh, thing. So one uh, of the things that's so bad about. about spinal cord injuries is because they don't heal, you can't really get better from that and there's a couple of tri- uh, sort of I guess trial level treatments that aren't really approved yet to try and treat that kind of thing but they're not even though these two, res- these two surgeons have published uh, research showing that they've done um, fusions of spinal cord injuries on mice the research is the paper has been like come under skepticism from other people in the same area so it doesn't really it's it's not something that's going to be super available super soon because it doesn't seem to be a thing yet yeah and the technique that they're using on the cadavers hasn't even been published so if they say if they're saying for one thing if they're saying yes we can do this now successfully why haven't they put out their technique for other people to use Mm. if they know for sure that that it's going to be a success. Mm. That's one of the main concerns is that there's a lot of um, things going on that aren't being done out in the open, if that makes sense. I wouldn't want it done out in the open. No, I guess guess not. (laughs) (laughs) If you compare it to something like the heart, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, it's inherently dangerous to replace a heart, but it's a relatively simple 
operation yeah, just... to do in, in compared to what we're talking about here mm-hmm. uh, whereas when you get to the spinal cord uh, to bring it back to functionality, there are millions of nerve connections that need to be uh, linked back together. So they're incredibly difficult to rejoin. So there's a lot of scepticism about these claims. Yeah, I think there's, there's also this, uh, when people have had other bo- parts of their body transplanted, uh, n- new hands and things, and mm. they've, they've rejected them um, Mentally, they've yeah, not accept just them. not just a physical rejection yeah. from an immune system. Like mentally, it, it's it, it can be quite traumatic because a lot of people just say like it's not my hand. There's, it's like there's somebody else mm. like just attached to me mm. or in bed with me mm. or like I think one one gentleman had a, a penis transplant and he had to have it removed because he was like it just didn't. It felt like somebody else. Mm. And if you can imagine like if it's your hand, you can take the hand off again. But if it's your entire body. Yes. Like what? What kind of trauma could that potentially cause? Yeah. No. It's it's a funny old story, isn't it? Mm. It really is. We've got time for a quick plug for um, Andy. Oh yes. So let's just do that okay. now. Who's who are we listening to here? Uh, this is uh, Andy Weir, author of The Martian, who uh, has got a new book out, and there are about ten tickets left for. Uh, Andy Weir in We the Curious Planetarium in January, which is an event I'm putting together. This is Andy Weir. Hi, I'm Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis. Artemis takes place in a city on the moon in the late 21st century. The main character is a woman who is a small-time criminal, and she gets in way over her head. The Martian and Artemis are similar in that, well, first off, they're both scientifically accurate, as much as I could be. Um, uh, They both involve scientific solutions to complicated scientific problems. Uh, but they differ in a lot of ways. The Martian was a straight-up human-versus-nature story where the goal was simple survival. Artemis is a much more complicated crime story with uh, mysteries involved, and it it was uh, much more difficult to write, but also a lot more interesting, I think. Uh, Andy Weir, and I say we're bringing him to Bristol's Planetarium in January. If you go to thecosmicshed.com, you can join me and uh, 99 other people and Andy Weir on a trip to the moon where he's going to talk to us about that and the Martian. Okay, and uh, it's great because I can see John Ford has crept into the corner of the studio and he's got no time to talk to us at all, just to say, hi John. You can hang around until after four o'clock, we can do our business then if you want. Oh, great, (laughs) okay. But uh, don't forget to stay uh, tuned uh, to uh, BCFM because after the news, John Ford will be uh, getting Bristol home. Uh, From uh, Andrew and Hannah and me, it's been great to have your company. Uh, We hope you have a very good evening don't forget to join us again next week and stay tuned uh, for john ford getting bristol home after the news take care love and science